And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So here we are in a new year. And new years tend to bring new philosophies, new outlooks, and possibly new religions. And that's what we're going to talk about today, or at least part of what we're going to discuss, and that is new religious movements in the United States, and also how they affected the things that we eat, our food culture. And these may seem like two disparate topics, but in fact, they are inextricably linked. And there is one person who can separate them for us in a digestible fashion, and that is Christina Ward, who both studied religions and she's a food science expert. So she's going to help us discover these long-lasting culinary legacy that religions have brought. And I will tell you, when this episode is over, you will not look at Little Debbie's the same way. So let's get into this. Christina, thank you so much for being on the show today. So I think the first thing that we have to do is to really, I think, introduce you. You wrote a book called Holy Food. I don't normally do subtitles here, but it's going to be important. It's called How Cults, Communes, and Religious Movements Influenced What We Eat, and probably currently influence as well. And so I said, you're a lot of things. Let's let's break some of these bona fides down, because you are quite the character. Uh, you are, you've been a poet, a food scientist, a cookbook collector. You're a publisher as well. Feral House Publishing, I believe, is under your purview. A master food preserver. And on your website, you call yourself a seeker. So my first question is, when did you start playing Quidditch? And do you consider the seeker the most undervalued position? I think the seeker is a great position for someone who isn't physically dominant. Mm -hmm. um, and I love sports that allows for all body types to participate. Now, that's not to say that you don't need skill, but it's nice to have a sport where um, everyone has an opportunity. That's a, a seeker. Definitely could do that. <laughs> that is true. Now, you and I are an opposite end of the spectrum. I think only gifted genetic freaks should be athletes. But we, we're not here to talk about sports. <laughs> um, but so as you're a Milwaukee native. Uh, oh, one thing I, I should mention with Feral House Publishing. Uh, this is I just want to quickly talk about it because it's quite a fascinating uh, you know, menagerie of books or authors, I should say, that you have. Uh, great books, great topics. As a matter of fact, a former guest, T. Krulos, um, American Madness, we did a whole episode with him. So we're already pushing your books before you came on the show. They got to be pretty excited about that. I am. And T says lovely things about you. I saw him last weekend. <laughs> Did he really? Um, Hold he, on. Did he really? Yeah. Don't lie to and me. Okay. He, no, I'm not. Because he's working on a new book too that I think everybody's oh. going to dig. Okay. Can you give hints or is it a secret? I can. I'll give you the hint this way okay. is if you grew up in the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, your Saturday mornings or Friday nights were usually spent watching TV and horror <laughs> movies with yeah. a special, special local introduction. And every city had one of those guys. Yes, that's true. Okay, I like this. So, Sven Gulli was hint. mine. Uh, you know, Elvira's in a lot. I think I know where you're going with this. Yeah, Hopefully it goes to back Loose to Vampira. No Neck. 
Oh, I don't know who that is, but I, hopefully. Yeah, I like I'll, it. It's I'll a great name. It. It's a fantastic name. Uh, so we're going to look forward to that. Uh, hopefully we'll push uh, some more of that Feral House publishing. Uh, but yeah, so Milwaukee native, you also are a frequent guest on the local Fox station. Uh, and I watched a lot of those videos. Those were a lot of fun. You even made shoe leather, which for those listening, that's a homemade fruit roll up, not to name drop here or a buzz market. But so you do a lot of this stuff. So food is really, you know, it's in your DNA. It is. It is. I grew up in in Milwaukee, in the city, and like so many kids, um, you know, of my era, I got sent to the farm every summer. Uh, my grandparents were rural, had a farm, and I loved it. I loved being um, on the farm, and I was always one of those weird kids who wanted to know why. I wanted to know how to do things, mm-hmm. and so my grandma was happy to have a helper, and so she taught me the initial like canning, weaving, uh, quilting, sewing. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty much a back to lander without actually being back to the land. Yeah, you would have made a fantastic pilgrim, I think. You would have been. <laughs> I think so. Been but it's pretty right. much, if the apocalypse comes, you probably want to come to our house, but I'm not going to tell you where our house is then. <laughs> <laughs> right. You don't want everyone. Yeah, let's let's keep that secret because, you know, uh, I do another show uh, about pop culture science. And, you know, one of my recent obsessions is the apocalypse. How will it come? When will it come? Is it inevitable and how to prepare for it? Uh, so, you know, we might have to have a you know, discussion later on about how I can better prepare myself. And Oh, sure. You know, and you're farming. I mean, this, you know, this goes deep. Yeah, I can say this about your house, hopefully, but you currently live in a form former dairy factory. So you, you not only, you know, talk this, you live this life. Yeah. Um, and I still, I can, I, I've got a batch of jam. I'm going to have to process. It's been fermenting, uh, for a few days. I'm going to process it this afternoon. <laughs> That's fantastic. Nothing like something fermenting, uh, to, to get back to, you know, you don't want this stuff to ferment too long for, for sure. Uh, so we're going to get to your book. You know, when you get your book, but I wanted to, there's a couple things that I want to get to, and I'm going to do it at the front here because I'm going to forget. And these are things that the world must know. Uh, the first is you have to tell me about how, about the time and how you were able to, to, you know, get this, <laughs> I were able to, to book this. You drove around town in the Wiener Mobile in Milwaukee talking about hot dogs. As far as mobiles go, for me, it's Batmobile, Wiener Mobile, Pope Mobile. So that's pretty high on the list. How did you how'd you get you get that going? Well, as a Wisconsinite, I do have to put the Wienermobile at the top of that list. Fair enough. But it, you've got a good list. So as a food historian, as an independent food historian, which means I'm not affiliated with any university program or mm. anything like that, um, I, you know, I have a small reputation, small S reputation, and and the history part of being a good researcher. So Padma Lakshmi's research team, their production team reached out to me hmm. um, and was looking for a little bit of background on Milwaukee food history. And I put together some things. I had a couple conversations and the fella who is the uh, chief producer was like, you know what, just, just why don't you come on air with us and you can be Padma's tour guide. And I'm like, Sure. That's cool. It was, and it was fantastic. And I'm going to pre-answer the question that uh, folks will always ask me. Padma Lakshmi is as beautiful as she is on TV, <laughs> but she's also yeah. brilliant, wicked, smart, and 
super funny. Somewhere out there on Padma's phone is us singing a version of the Oscar Mayer Wiener song. Not the one that appears on the TV show, because it's a Taste the Nation season one, episode two. Uh, nice little plug there. Uh, so you guys do one on the show. Is there a secret one that you do? That uh... Yeah, there was a little naughtier version that's on her hey, phone no. somewhere that we we, we, uh, we sang. Oh, wow. <laughs> Can we get, is this, this is just private. This is, this is only a this rumor and myth. Okay. All right. But yeah. it's out there. I don't have a copy of it. Only Padma's got a copy of it. <laughs> well, hopefully we can get her to release that. Yeah, that was cool. I mean, the Wienermobile, man, that's, that's, uh, that's pretty amazing. Uh, and so also in your book, so a lot of these are, I, I'm going to admit at the top, some of the stuff's going to be disjointed and I apologize. We're going to get to some more structured co- conversation later on. But so you also talk about in 1985, Louis Farrakhan admitted to having an alien abduction experience. And this is important because the episode that just aired of this show, I talked to a guy, we we talked specifically about UFOs, abductions, and all of that, and the history of it in the United States. So this fits right in there. You got to tell me about this. And how did that make that into your book about food? Well, I, I can go on about this. Now, mm. one of the, I think the, the research <laughs> subject, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'm going to stop myself, or, yeah. is... Um, that the evolution of American belief systems didn't just happen to, you know, white people. We mm-hmm. have this myth of seeing all these just cults in the 70s and it's just happy white people. Um, and black people, African-American people also um, were very interested in different ways to express spirituality and were you know, exposed to the same kind of culture and pop culture influences that everyone else is. And so there is a fantastic stream of kind of black esoteric spirituality. And so the Farrakhan, the modern nation of Islam, and uh, based on Farrakhan's uh, UFO sighting and UFO experience, has really taken the nation of Islam in a different direction. They have regular bus tours that they take, go down to Sedona mm-hmm. um, oh, and visit the vortex. Yeah. And so it has really influenced the belief system and reified their narrative of, of creation, which is different than um, what the Christian narrative of creation is. Yeah, that's it's really interesting because you don't normally I mean, when it comes UFOs, it's just such an interesting topic. Uh, and we won't I'll try not to fall down the, the rabbit hole here. But it's interesting because the people who believe or don't believe are very specific. And there's such a stigma attached that's going away now. Um, but, you know, especially at that time in 85, I mean, you had, you know, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, uh, you, you had prominent people. Um, the, uh, one's escaping me now. It was in 85. Oh, um, Dennis Kucinich, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. major politicians, the leaders of, of uh, you know, of thought have mentioned this before. So it's interesting. Louis Farrakhan was not one that was ever on my radar and I'm into this stuff. So that was a really cool little tidbit uh, for yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if you've ever spoken to, but you know, you may Lewis? want to talk to a very, a very good old friend of mine who is essentially like the new John Mack and that's Greg Agigian, Dr. Greg Agigian over okay. at Penn State All right. is, he's the, he's the new John Mack and he would be someone to talk to in depth about that what you're talking about is how do people process that their notion? Because they truly believe. I've never had a UFO experience, so I'm kind of speaking in the third person. Um, but people truly believe. And there's a lot of um, kind of that gaslighting that goes on. But at the same time, there are still mysteries in the universe. Mm-hmm. We, I th- you know, we don't know everything. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I like to pretend that I do. That is part of my gimmick. But in fact, do I? I think I do. But not everyone agrees with me. But most people don't. So I I think you're right there. Uh, Another thing, alcohol, tobacco, firearms were the first major 
wealth generating industries for the US. And that's kind of how we have the ATF. I always thought that was a pretty random assortment of things, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, what are we talking about here? Uh, but that's pretty cool. So that goes all the way back to what the founding of the nation? Yeah, very early. The first um, taxes, essentially, which were tariffs, uh, were on alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. And it was always, it's funny thing, why would you put those three terrible things together? Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, it sounds like a terrible combination of things. Uh, but those were, again, the revenue generators. And those were the ones, uh, you know, thinking about the very puritanical, very fundamentalist Protestant kind of governmental founding of the United States, anything that was considered a vice, a sin. Um, was subject to taxes and tariffs. Well, it's interesting because, you know, you also have like vice squads, but that's a lot of gambling and prostitution, you know, the quote unquote victimless crimes. And that I feel like that would be kind of roped in here. I mean, you know, if you got a cigar and a thing of scotch and you're shooting a gun in the air, of course, you want to have a prostitute and a blackjack dealer next to you. I mean, that all to me just feels like a big happy family. So I was surprised that they're separated. But this is I thought that was a, a really cool uh, little tidbit there. Um, one well, other thing. Well, I, oh, I, I'm going to interrupt one second. Sure, so sure. why aren't they, why are they? separated yeah. as, as you said victimless crime i mean so if you look at the early founding of the united states okay. prostitution wasn't wasn't a crime i that's true so then oh so then it wasn't it wasn't a tax then i mean you don't doesn't someone want to make some money on that weren't there pimps in the in the political system as well well, that's a whole different all kind right. of conversation. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. I'll move on. But th we got to we got to talk about that at some point. Uh, another thing here. Uh, this was so in your book, you know, you mentioned in a few places that you have a lot of kind of subplots that yeah, you kind of work their tentacles through the whole book, because really your book is about uh, I would say it's more about the history of smaller religions or the religious movement in the United States as uh, the United States being a unique breeding ground for all sorts of thought and the evolution of thought given the uh, our rights, you know, the freedom of religion in the Constitution. And one of the things that kind of weaves its way through this podcast is the enormous amount of topics that really started with the Chicago uh, World's Fair, the 19, 1893 Columbia Exposition. And, you know, of course, your book falls into that. You find this, you got a special place in the history of the show because Henry Alcott, the co-founder of Theosophy, Theosophy, I always get this, Theosophy? Theosophy. Theosophy. Okay, I always mispronounce that. But he, found, he funded a Buddhist delegation to the 1893 Chicago World Parliament on Religions. But I looked this up. And those were that was in conjunction that was going on at the same time as the Chicago World's Fair. And in some ways that introduced Americans to Buddhism. So this is a pretty cool connection. And I think, you know, uh, that the modern era really started with that World's Fair. That would be my contention that we're not going to talk about uh, on this show. Um, but what do you think about that? I think that that's a pretty cool connection. I think it's a, that's a fantastic connection. In my previous book about um, American advertising cookbooks and the governmental corporation, I come back actually to those world fairs because they played a critical, the 1873 world fair, I think in Philadelphia, hmm. um, okay. played a huge role in um, the development of printing presses and food processing. And now 20 years later, um, in 1893 in Chicago, uh, again, that had a huge influence on 
religious belief because Alcott mm-hmm. also um, so brought a very specific brand of uh, Buddhism. There's lots of different sects, just as there's uh, many different branches of Christianity, so too are there branches of Hinduism and Buddhism. And so Alcott was very uh, focused on uh, kind of the Sri Lankan in the Sri Lanka area of that style of Buddhism. But there were also other religious emissaries coming and introducing um Islam in the different branches of Islam and also some of the yoga practitioners were coming. So they were all at that World's Fair in Chicago. That's great. I love that. That's fantastic. I mean, that was I mean, I'm from Chicago. You know, I know you're a little north of the of the Great Cheddar Curtain in Milwaukee, but Chicago is a a very underrated city, in my opinion. I think it's uh, it's understated, but its historical significance, I don't think, should be overlooked uh, for sure. It's a very historically significant area in the city. And still, to this day, it almost uh, matches Los Angeles. Angeles as uh, centers of new religious movements. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Chicago's got just as many um, and and was the breeding ground for a lot of them that then migrated out to Los Angeles. Yeah, because when you think of communes and cults, California is usually what you think of. Uh, mm-hmm. but, but we'll get to that. One last thing here, because we're going to hit your cookbook collection. I'm glad you preempted it there, which I'm, I'm giving up a great segue here in your cookbook to mention one other quick thing. You talk about green corn which is an old term for sweet corn. I'd never heard this before, but it's also the Amish term for marijuana. That yeah. seems, <laughs> I would think, did they partake? Were the Amish, uh, were they into marijuana? Or, because that doesn't, I figured they would have a much more evil name for marijuana, you know, the devil's cabbage or something like that. No, I mean, it's it was a plant and it was not something that was used at all, just as they don't really drink alcohol either, because uh, they of that Anabaptist movement, they eschew any type of stimulants of any kind, anything that is going to alter the state of your mind. Okay. But but um, it's a it's a how do I say this? It's it's a shifting morality. They're not going to do it themselves. But some of the largest cannabis growers currently uh-huh. in the United States are Mennonite and Amish. Is that true? Yeah, they've got big, big cannabis farms. And so that's the Amish and the Mennonite and the Hutterite. They, they've, it's more Mennonite and Amish um, sure. in the United States. Um, but yeah, they, they've always been pretty proactive on looking for ways to diversify their revenue to keep their communities intact. Because that's one of the keys to any kind of um, keeping your commune together or you know, your collective right. is uh, economic sustainability. Yeah, I would. So do they get into poppy seeds as well? I mean, I know that's so much different crop, but um, but very lucrative. I think we could both agree. Um, quite lucrative. You know, did you know that we published a book about that? About um, you know, nature's <laughs> medicine, essentially how to grow and harvest your own. I I didn't. Uh, but that would be a fascinating noun, maybe maybe a future one. Uh, that's really interesting. I mean, because we're going to talk about you know later on with the cults and communes in California, specifically in the '60s. You know, when you connect food to religion. Uh, Philocybin, peyote, you know, the native cultures as well. Obviously, they're doing it way before the communes in California. But there's a, you know, there's a, a connection to naturally occurring hallucinogenics and religion. That connection is really strong. Uh, and I think that that it is. You know, Right in and there. scientifically proven. And that's not just somebody, you know, you saying it. This is proven by science. Um, and that goes to that era of Timothy Leary, Ram Das, you know, Richard Albert. They were the first guys to start 
at um, at Harvard, they were testing LSD, and very specifically in the famous Good Friday experiments, they were looking um, to test to find out if these hallucinogens could actually um, kind of influence your belief in a spirituality. And so the Good Friday experiment um, in the very early 60s, they tested LSD on divinity students from divinity school. And sure enough, most people had um, an, a heightened spiritual experience. Wow. I, and I think you even talk about them using MRI on their brain, like yeah. really what what part of your brain is is uh you know affected by this and enhanced uh i mean it's interesting because we are really just electrochemical beings everything that we experience is a construct of the interpretation of stimuli in the world by our brain so you can do any i mean if you want to create you know if you want to create jesus the best way to do that would be through hallucinogenic mushrooms and have them believe uh through a divine experience that they are in fact you know, God incarnated on earth. That's how you do it. You do it, you know, that way. Yeah, it, it does actually work on brain chemical to break down the different two different sections of the brain, the more rational to the spiritual side and build more, more neural pathways. Um, all the hallucinogen, so LSD does that as well as natural psilocybin. Uh, and that was what that research was doing. And so when you said MRI, uh, they did not have MRI in the early 60s. The no. re Good Friday experiment was repeated in modern era oh, and the, enough, findings right, yeah. were, the findings were exactly the same. And as you pointed out, were more confirmed because they were had that fMRI technology to yeah. prove, to show where the brain was uh, lighting up and the changes. Yeah, before MRI, you basically just had you know, a guru's anecdotal experience on whether they were Jesus or not. And now you can prove right. that people believe that. Uh, it's, it's pretty fascinating stuff. But so you mentioned, you know, we mentioned uh, the green corn. Let's talk about your your cookbook here, and one specific one. You, so you have, from what I understand, you have quite a collection of cookbooks. You you cite a lot of them in this book. You've got pictures of them. A lot of them are historic, uh, going back hundreds of years. Some are more modern and recent. Uh, but you did get a copy. Uh, you know, I imagine a lot of them are used. I'm sure you're not getting them from oh, yeah. uh, from, from the tab. Uh, you but there was one in particular called the Golden Temple Cookbook, where you found a, a marijuana leaf in a used copy of that. Uh, that's pretty interesting. Have you found anything else in these cookbooks? Any other recipes or ingredients? Um that I documented that right away. Just that's a cell phone picture. I'm like, I was so surprised when I found that. It, it, it was just, it was so on brand, yeah. you know, a, a, a hippie cult cookbook. It's got the big, the flattened pot leaf. Little on the nose. Um, yeah. Yeah. And the, I didn't find anything else as exciting tucked in. What I did find, especially in the used cookbooks, were notes mm -hmm. as people do in, in, in cookbooks. You just, there was one cookbook that was noted up with, with uh, just judgment. Good, bad, good, bad, very good, very bad. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was really funny. Yeah. Um, and as well as people, as people do it just in cooking, I think no one really follows a recipe. Uh, very few people do. It's always a, just a suggestion. And so the cookbooks are also noted with like, well, I didn't like that. I changed that and, mm. you know, adjusted this. And, you know, so there was a lot of that. I wish I would have found like some sort of message from Yogi Bajan or something. That would have cool. been extraordinary. Right. Any, any um, like dedications in the front covers? There were a few, but it, what was interesting is that of that time period, a yeah. lot of the books um, were 70s or, or very early 80s. And there was a generally cultural acceptance. And a lot of the groups that you were talking about had food brands. They had right. um, restaurants. And so people would give the cookbooks 
as gifts. And so there's some gift inscriptions, not anything related to the spiritual aspect, just purely on the food. <laughs> That's so funny. Uh, I mean, but I, and I imagine, you know, for doing it, you include a lot of recipes, a lot of trial and error here. And I imagine there's a lot of, um, you know, uh, kind of off the beaten path types of ideas for recipes. So I imagine you ate a lot of strange and unusual things. Well, we did. But also working in food and doing recipe development, as I do, is you become pretty tuned in. You can read a recipe if you're with experience and you can know, know what's gonna uh, happen. pretty well <laughs> if, if that's going to be terrible. Yeah. Um, so that was the first pass. That was pretty easy. After culling things that we thought could we, meaning, you know, uh, I had enlisted a few friends during the pandemic. It was a great pandemic project. Um cooking, you mm -hmm. know, assigning recipes for people to test. And there were ones, of course, that we thought were going to be good, that were terrible and vice versa. And so that goes to the limitations of these groups, both the limitations in their choice about what they're restricting mm -hmm. because of, for whatever, you know, their spiritual reasons, and then also what foods they have available based on either their geography or mostly their poverty. Uh, so you get a lot of bean uh, meals sure. based things because you know it's cheap yeah and they're good i like beans they're all right yeah i do too good protein yeah yeah with rice i mean it's a good complete protein whether you're a vegetarian omnivore or carnivore well i guess if you're a carnivore you're not gonna eat beans and rice but it's you know it's great cheap uh, i think it's great food so are crickets as well great protein source um so again your book is called holy food now i do have to say so there's one of the things here, I believe you you identify as an atheist. Am I allowed to say that? Sure, you can. Say, and I'm very clear to say I am atheist, not an atheist, okay. because I think it, it, it's a semantical issue. Um, atheist is just it means without God. I mean, I I'm not a believer, but that doesn't mean I subscribe to anything else. Right. It doesn't mean I'm anti-God, which a lot of times the modern definitions of atheism as a practice, as a, you know, as a club, uh, because means anti-God and, and I'm not anti-God. I'm just, he's not with me. You're godless. I'm godless. I'm a heathen. <laughs> you're, you're godless heathen. Well, I think it kind of in some ways makes you a perfect third party observer because in truth, this book is really to me. And there's a, maybe there's something that I missed here, but when I read the book, it's called Holy Food, but I felt like it was really more of a deep dive into the evolution of religions. And food, in some ways, it takes a, it, a back seat. It's like a sidekick to the religious part, I think. It's important, but I felt like it was, it was um, a lot of really interesting tidbits. It is important. There are a lot of rules about it. Um, but, but I thought that, I don't know, maybe I missed it. Was, what were you, what was the true focus of this book for you? And, and, this, and how did you get in, into this topic? So childhood obsessions, mm -hmm. the whys, always the why. I want to know why things. And for me, food and religious belief have always been interconnected. And so my goal, and, you know, I was trying, and again, we're all not perfect, um, was to try to tell that story of both how the food was influencing religious belief, how it influenced culture, society, and how the religious movements uh, and the beliefs about who we are and what we're believing changed and then influenced the food. Um, it, you know, it's it's a big practice. It's a big topic. It's I, huge. I, I, I did my I did my very best. Yeah. Because I thought the the biggest reveal for me was that interconnectivity. Yeah. The interconnectivity of the spiritual beliefs, and those became important in going in depth of explaining how you how you know you got to from Father Divine, yeah. who 
and from Black Masons to Father Divine to Jim Jones, because that's a direct relationship. That's a hard, dark through line. That's yeah. not a dotted line. Yeah. And their connectivity was through what they were believing and the, how they put that into practice in a lot of groups use food as an outward show of practice. You know, it's interesting because so that kind of makes sense. I guess when I and this may have been um, expectations I had going in because I thought it was going to be what like how do certain groups things that they ate or traditions that they had? How did it influence like how is it influenced today? And there are lots of those. You know, you mentioned Little Debbie's. We're going to get to that. Um, You know, soul food, I thought was a great section on how, you know, um, culture and food and religion all come into basically an entire cuisine genre. You know, I mean, that that's mm-hmm. super interesting. And, you know, but even you know, I think we just had Thanksgiving. Right. I mean, there's no connection between religion and food. The pilgrims. Right. I mean, in Thanksgiving, that's a kind of a, a religious. It's, it's a religious holiday. Yeah. It started as a religious holiday. And that's kind of the beauty. And just to talk a little bit about mm-hmm, that. Sure. So that was a fundamental, you know, remember our Puritans, they were, you know, fundamentalist Protestants that had been kicked out of every other country because mm-hmm. they were so extreme. Yeah. Um, and so their belief, they were having a feast to celebrate that God gave them food that let, you know, God allowed them to survive that first winter or second winter. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And the practice became then a celebration. It became symbolic and adopted by other groups and other religions and other influences, which I think is so fascinating because they we, we celebrate uh, Thanksgiving today. And while there's still Turkey, there's a lot of groups that, and a lot of families and people that have introduced a lot of other foods. If you're going to um, a traditionally like Mexican-American food, there's going to be tamales on, on the Thanksgiving table, hmm. thankfully. Yeah, yes, right. I'm, I'm grateful for tamales. Yeah. Um, and so, and that's part of that American story is how much we take what we want and we reject the rest. And out of that, we build something new. Yeah, it is really, I mean, Thanksgiving is the perfect kind of poster child for what you just said, because really we think of it today as it's kind of like a bounty. This is the time where we're thankful for all the things that have happened throughout the year. And it's a gigantic feast where we all, it's kind of an excess. I mean, that's why it's like the mm. quintessential American holiday. It's, it's, it is absolutely excess, right? Uh, excess. And I think that when you eat the foods you want to eat, you know, I mean, um, I, I dated a, a girl and she was African-American. And so going to her Thanksgiving was very different than going to my rural Illinois Thanksgiving, where it was like turkey, mashed potatoes, cranberries, uh, cranberry sauce and yams, uh, sweet potatoes, which I was not super into and, and creamy, creamy casserole, like very Midwestern. Right. Then I went yeah. there and it was a lot of soul food, collard greens, mac and cheese, um, sweet potato pie. And, you know, I prefer pumpkin over sweet potato any day of the week, but macaroni and cheese is a pretty delicious thing to have for Thanksgiving. So I've incorporated that into my Thanksgiving. And I think it's really just perfectly about like, what foods do you like? And, but as you said, it started as a religious holiday. And I think that's what kind of makes Thanksgiving the overlooked holiday. It's, you know, smashed in between, you know, the, the Gothic Christmas and regular Christmas and people forget about it. And I think it's important to, to remember that. It is. If I could change Thanksgiving in um, many, in at least one very specific way, is I think, as you said, it is a feast. It is an excess. What we Americans don't do very well is fasting. <laughs> fasting is like kind of a conscientious practice, uh-huh. not not just intermittent fasting to lose weight, but as a as a kind of a spiritual practice or this idea of giving up something. I know that's in the Catholic tradition of Lent, but I do think that I, I you hear stories of people like 
eating a lot, starting to eat a lot prior to Thanksgiving to like get ready to eat even more. I'd love, <laughs> so I'd love to see the go the other way. Maybe we could go hungry for a day and then appreciate how much food we do have and that we are not starving. Uh, there are so many people. And I think and that's you know, the food preservation aspect coming in is it's not that long ago. If you have the, um, the great gift of having, say, your great grandparents still alive, mm -hmm. is it wasn't so long ago. It was in the 1900s that literally starving to death in the United States happened. And that doesn't really happen so much anymore. And we that's we should be grateful for that. Yeah, that I mean, that is a great thing. I mean, it is the thing that I mean, unfortunately, those things do define Americans. Right. And we're, we're really pig headed about it. But it's it's kind of like when you have a, a football team or a sports team that does really well. Everyone else hates them except the fans of that team, but also secretly everyone wants to also be a winner. And so you have this kind of guy where people like want to be American, but also they're really annoyed because we're kind of jerks about a lot of things. And Thanksgiving, as you mentioned, the haves and the have nots, people, people, a lot of people around the world are starving and we have a bunch of food and we gear, we eat extra to gear up to eat the way marathon runners run extra miles to gear up for a marathon. Yeah. And that goes to, um, as you mentioned it, the tribalism, we, you know, it's hard to be a big country. It really is. Uh, and we have a lot of division and a lot of differences. And I think Thanksgiving is an, just absenting it, severing it from our colonial history, from our settler history, from the Native American massacres, separating it all from that. It, Thanksgiving as an American holiday has great value because it is one of the unifying holidays that we have. Yeah, I think that's true. That's a really good point. Um, and and I think, you know, the Thanksgiving and the pilgrims, that's one end of the spectrum of religion and food. And on the other end are the Pastafarians who are literally religion <laughs> and food put together. They are, you know, I did a whole episode on the Church of the Subgenius, and I did some research oh. on the Pastafarians. And, I, you know, I actually, I uh, I whiffed on this. And, doc, you know, Reverend Stang, uh, I promised him I would do this. And I, I broke my promise to the Reverend. But I was going to get a new driver's license. And I was going to put a colander on my head as a Pastafarian. Now, I'm not a practicing Pastafarian. I'm a non-practicing Pastafarian. But I do really enjoy the religion. And I didn't do that. Christina, I whiffed. Um, I didn't want to go through the paperwork. And I'm, well, I, I'm talking to you about it. I'm guilty. I feel guilty. Well, you know, you could just get a Wisconsin driver's license because we let folks, you can renew your driver's license at any time if you want a new picture. Is that right? Yeah. See, I got to wait like five years in California. I don't like that. Well, well, well <laughs> another great thing uh, about Wisconsin. Point, point to Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I thought that was really cool. But I mean, obviously, they're more of, you know, um, a satirical religion, but it's literally worshiping a spaghetti god. I mean, what better connection for your book, religion, food, Pastafarians? How come they're not on the cover? <laughs> well, of course, I had to add the Pastafarians uh -huh. in because of that connection that you just pointed out. Mm -hmm. But also that section is also paired with recipe from the Satanic Temple. This idea of um, having a pseudo-religious group um, advocate for non-religiosity. Essentially, that's what those groups are. Because it talks because it, it really speaks to that extreme of American stubbornness, as you pointed out, yeah. of, you know, the Pastafarians are a great, like, what do you mean we can't wear a, a strainer on our head? What do you mean we can't be as absurd <laughs> as we want to be as is just an expression of our non-belief? Yeah. And again, that's the, the American way. If we're as many people that um, are devout believers in 
you know, their particular deity, there are same, if not more people who don't really believe in anything, but do believe in the United States. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) I agree with you. It is funny how unless you have a gigantic flag in your yard or on your car or where an American flag lapel pin, then you couldn't possibly love America as much as other people who do those things. That's utterly ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, does love yeah. have to be shown all that? If you love your wife, do you have to have a picture of her on a sweater all the time with a hat? With I mean, like it's ridiculous, you know, uh, that, that belief system. But I, you know, I was reading about that. I'd never heard of the Satanic Temple. And you have a, a recipe in the book. And the way you, you talk about it, I mean, just their whole approach to civil rights, which is really what they are. They're a civil rights advocacy mm-hmm. group masquerading as a, as, a, as a religion that's pretending to be satanic. I mean, it's kind of like the right. great Stephen Colbert exactly. character from, you know, the Colbert Report, who is like he's a moderate pretending to be a liberal disguised as a is a um, conservative. It was brilliant. And the satanic temple, I think encapsulates all of that. I thought they were really funny, you know, not a name you want to throw around a lot, but it's, I, I like them a lot. I, I like them too. And, and note that I, I know those, those folks okay. and I respect, I respect their work. And as you pointed out, their work is in civil rights and pointing out also in, in incorporating as a church, it, it, it speaks to the American extremism of where our First Amendment has gone um, and that nonprofit clauses and the tax codes is if you read um, some of the incorporation rules from the IRS about being a church, how to incorporate as a, a 501c3 church is – you're not supposed to talk about politics. You're not supposed to be lobbying for changes <laughs> in the laws. Right. Those are you're not supposed to do that. But there hasn't been an IRS prosecution uh, or investigation on any of these churches in a very long time. Right. And I think and Clearly. so the TST, the Satanic Temple, has done a really you know fascinating thing: is taking a contra 180 position, saying, "Okay, we are a political group, but we're going to be a church." And we're going to take advantage and show how warped our systems have become and really start advocating and fighting back in the most extreme ways necessary. And I think that goes to, again, a, a very American quality of humor. Yeah, uh, There is nothing like laughing at the king, right, mm-hmm. that, you know, kind of saps his power. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it, it's what I like about it. It's not only being funny, but it's also being right. So they have strong yeah. arguments. And you can't deny the argument. And when you point out that the argument is so logical that any opposition to it is ludicrous and, and you know, you're being a hypocrite if you if you don't agree, you kind of it's all built into that. You know, I, I just thought I was really I was really impressed with with what they do. Uh, and I think we need more of that. You know, I, I think otherwise, you know, what's going to be different between us and a theocracy in the Middle East? You know, I mean, we're, we're coming that way. Yeah, we've forgotten that. That And that's something one of the I've been asked a few times by when I'm talking in front of people is like, oh, what are we supposed to learn from this book? And I'm like, well, Aside from making dough gods and learning how to do that, you, you know, you should take away the idea that your God can tell you what to eat. You can't tell me what to eat. Right. And that goes, of course, extension. You know, your God can tell you what to do, but he can't tell me or, you know, and that's we've lost that a bit. Yeah, I know. I, I completely agree. I, it's yeah, it's that's a whole 
a whole system. I mean, because, uh, again, there's a lot of religion and food mixed in here. So there's a lot of religious conversations yes. that I think that this book kind of brings out. Uh, one thing here, I think you've mentioned this in, in a, a bio or a blurb. And if I missed it in your book, I apologize. But this one's near and dear to my heart. Hopefully you can speak to it. So I was raised Catholic. And one of the things that I always thought was interesting is the idea that you can't eat meat on Fridays during Lent, but you can eat fish. Uh, which is why the filet of fish at McDonald's was always so popular in my household. Uh, but this, you know, I remember learning about, it's one of these, these rumors that you hear that the reason that happened is from a papal, a, uh, what is that, papal degree? That's not it. Papal degree? Yeah, papal degree. Papal degree. There you go. Thank you for the pronunciation. Uh, the papal dec decree that in order to boost the, you know, the fishermen imports or exports the, or increase the industry, you know, he decreed that you have to eat fish on Friday. This seems completely plausible. I don't know how true it is, but it's it's also a connection between not only what you it's basically saying a religion saying what you can and can't eat. So I, I had the, the pleasure of spending a few years in Catholic schools as well. Okay. Um, and I can tell you that I've heard that rumor before, but there is no documented proof okay. that. Um, you know, some old pope and his crony had were cornering the fish market and, you know, deciding to you think. But it's a great it story, though. We got to admit, it's a great story. It's a good story. Yeah. Um, you know, that, but it does go back to, and again, everything tends to be a progression, is in the very earliest times in classification of the foods, if you go back to the cash route to the, in um, the early books of the, you know, the Torah, is there's a classification of what you can eat and what you can't. What's kosher? what's not kosher. And the meats are all categorized differently and fish are not considered meat. And that it's so that it's rooted there. So fish had never really been considered meat in the same way a cow had been. And okay. that's where that that separation comes from. I got okay. So uh, I mean, I do really like the idea that somehow the fishmongers had an overpower, a polit overpowered political influence, and that they were able to <laughs> control Catholicism for <laughs> hundreds of years. But um, unfortunately, I think your explanation makes a lot more sense. Well, I will say at least the perch fishermen of Lake Michigan did corner the market on inventing the fish fry for bars and churches in Milwaukee. That and if you see Catholic cities on the Great Lakes, Cleveland. Uh -huh. Buffalo. Yeah. And that actually is was industry driven. Uh, it was a collusion between the fishermen and um, the bar owners because they were looking for revenue generators during prohibition. And so serving meals, that's how you, you started. The bars started serving food and the fish fries on Friday were popular. I mean, I love it. There's nothing, you know, I love more than fish and chips. Uh, that is a delicious meal. Not very healthy, um, but man, is it, 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 it is good. Uh, all right. So let's, let's move, you know, uh, let's move in the opposite of the spectrum. Let's talk about utopias because you do kind of a lot. I would say maybe I'm wrong here, but kind of like the second half of your book is a lot about not utopias, but chasing the idea of create as a religious group, creating your own self-sustaining community. And I think that starts in new harmony. And this is interesting because I did uh, uh, a whole I did a whole other podcast on this small little um, commune uh, in Illinois called Stell. And when I was doing the research, I, when I completed it, I, I made a promise that I would give that research to uh, the university that's in New Harmony because now they specialize in communes and religious groups that have created self-sufficient communities. And so this was uh, the, the history here uh, I thought was extremely interesting. And this idea of utopia, 
you know, goes back to biblical times. I mean, it's basically recreating Eden. And that idea that like our ideas are so pure and we can do that. And New Harmony, I think, was really with the scientific approach in the intentional community. Anyway, I'm babbling a little bit here, but tell me about them and uh, let's work food in there too. I'm sure it's there. Well, it goes back to some of the theorists is um, uh, that the utopian thinking, again, you're, you're absolutely right, goes back to this ideal, the Garden of Eden lost. And so that it's the forever chase of going, how do we get back to the Garden of Eden? How do we recreate that? And so you see that divergence. So there's a religious pathway. Uh, and that's groups who separate and they have a very strict belief system and they're going to remove themselves from the rest of society so they can perfect themselves and create this Garden of Eden on Earth. And then you get other groups who are who are secular. They still want that ideal community. And so it had been theorized a long time. Thomas More in the 1600s. Um, you see it a lot more post-Industrial Revolution or during the Industrial Revolution because it was a fairly brutal existence in Europe if you were not one of the ruling class. And so when when someone's imp- oppressed in any way, you start daydreaming of a better life. Uh, and so they, these ideas were of models of how to do it. And then later with the uh, settling of the United States, it provided a huge opportunity for both the religious groups and some of these secular theorists about how to create a utopia. Um, the failure of every utopia is the same, which is, is humans are um, never exactly the same mm-hmm. and we're kind of lazy so mm-hmm. the the burden of work tends to be disproportionate and then builds resentment and that is what happened at new harmony which was based on was built was originally a commune it was a religious commune and that was the what they call the economites or the rapites um it was a, a offshoot from their original commune in pennsylvania they were branching out it, they didn't like it. It didn't work because they were wine growers and you could. it was hard to grow grapes, wine grapes in uh, Indiana. So they sold it to um, a fellow from Scotland. Um, so Owens, he was a theorist. He was also a factory owner and he was a very early kind of proto-socialist. And his goal was to build a community, a town where workers could work and people could think, and everyone would be treated as equally as possible and always have access to food. And that's where food becomes a primary uh, topic in these utopias, because again, people were starving and the food supply was inconsistent for most people. You had to go out every day to go, if you're in, in London and you're working in a factory, you had to go out every day to go find bread or, you know, peas, porridge, hot, right? There's the old, there's right. a reason, peas, porridge, hot, <laughs> peas, porridge, cold, peas, porridge in the pot, nine days old. Mm-hmm. So that little rhyme comes from actually how people ate. You put your your different pulses in the pot and you just kept adding water until you could get something new in the pot. So that's where food becomes this like preoccupation yeah. for all these utopian thinkers. Um, and then put in trying to put that into practice. The, the challenge in the United States was a lot of these folks were coming from Europe had no idea about the landscape, about the geography, about how to even grow things. A lot of these people were coming to build their utopias with zero agricultural experience whatsoever. And so all of these led to some successes, some short-term successes, but mostly failure. You really have to know how to work the land. 
you know, I remember there was this guy who I went to high school with and I, I grew up in a rural part of Illinois. And, you know, I remember this guy who's going to college for agricultural engineering or something like I forget what it was called. But it basically you go to school and get a degree in farming. And, you yeah. know, that's what he wanted to do. But, but I think in a lot of ways you can pass on those obviously how to do that. But to do it at any large scale or for, you know, people are depending on it. Right. Like if you're a farmer your income's dependent on the food, but your family probably isn't. Uh, but if right. you're in a, in a commune like that, everyone's, li everyone's life depends on that crop working uh, and being able to save it. As you mentioned, you've got fermenting jam, you know, uh, just feet from you right now. Being able to do mm -hmm. that and save for the winter, be the grasshopper, you know, uh, in that, in that yeah. fable. Uh, that's really important and can't be overlooked, the ability to grow food. It, it can't. And I think United States, we have a, a currently we have a romantic notion about what farming is. And yeah. sure, there are still what they call market farmers, like with a small acreage that sure. are growing organic and selling at farmers markets. And that's fantastic. We need that. But the majority of agriculture in the United States is mechanized. And so you would need an egg degree. And the same thing with animal husbandry. Uh, that is a highly scientific um, in how you're feeding those uh, food animals, how, you know, how you're taking care of them and the medications required, the soil remediation, how the harvesting and the storage and, you know, how to prevent uh, infestation from pathogens, whether they're bugs or whether they're little tiny germ bugs that are killing a lot of people. So yeah. again, that is some real hard science and yes, it can be passed down, but becoming more and more um, science oriented and needing advanced education. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny when you talk about husbandry, it's just, I mean, could you imagine if there was, you know, an, an alien civilization looking to, for a protein source and thought humans were great and you have human husbandry and people talking the way we're talking about livestock, you know, talking about mm -hmm. us, well, you got to have humans together. And I mean, cause it's, you know, it's a, the, I, I knew, uh, there was a, uh, a guy that I worked with who, um, he worked for this comp uh, how was it, company, it was a nonprofit that basically gave uh, seeing eye dogs to uh, people who couldn't see. And, you know, that that whole process, I mean, just the process of breeding animals is so clinical and scientific that you couldn't even imagine applying that to human beings. But if you were going to breed us for whatever, for cloning or whatever, I mean, you would have a whole different conversation. It's just interesting, like when you, you know, when you really get into that. It is. And actually leads into something as we talk about this utopian period, especially so the first kind of utopian era. Look at you in with the, the segues. That's my job. You're stealing my gimmick. Sorry. <laughs> You're doing better. I'm, I'm an interrupter. I'm a Midwest interrupter. You're doing it better than I am. Go, go on, go on. Um, and so that was actually one of the goals in some of the communes of the 1800s and the late really? 1800s. This idea, it's like proto-eugenics. It's called stirrup culture. This idea of breeding a huh. better human. And especially at the Oneida commune, mm -hmm. the Oneida commune was a proponent of that essentially selective breeding for humans. The idea that you could make, you, you could, through a little force of thought, um, yeah. make a a smarter, a more physically sound human being. And, you know, th that is a very hot topic in the yeah. sense of, you know, you can't really talk about that kind of stuff. It, no. Rightfully so, because the United <laughs> States has had some really bad experiments in yeah. history that that we've got a lot to atone for that way. No, it's it's true. But, you know, I'm, let's let's push it a little bit, because I think this is an interesting topic and you brought it up. Uh, just remember, that everyone listening, uh, this was not a topic that I put on the table. Uh, but but I think it, it is interesting because it's totally true. You can do that. You can genetically select for anything that you want 
in anything with DNA, you can genetically select the things that you want. So you could theoretically breed better humans. And the truth is, you know, you can't talk about eugenics as off top, you know, and, and I get all that. But what's interesting is that these conversations with genetic engineering at the, you know, uh, at the egg, the fertilization level is totally fine. It's really the same thing. It's just a much more efficient way to um, manufacture uh, humans uh, and genetically pick, you just pick and choose the genes that you want. And we're pretty close to being able to do that. You know, that kind of gets out of that whole sticky wicket of like, oh, we have to breed this person with that person and get these, you just Hey, this is what's available in your DNA, and this is what we want. Epigenetics allows us to hit some switches. I know it's not that easy, but, you know, that's kind of what people, you know, designer babies is kind of where we're moving to. Well, it's always the difference between theoretical science and applied science, mm -hmm. and it's the applied science where it starts going off the rails a bit. Um, <laughs> and so it's true. It's true. if we think about it, and this is this is morally ambiguous ground, yeah, and uh, I don't feel qualified to make a, a judgment because <laughs> Fair enough. you know yeah. it, just to think about it, we've just had this amazing, incredible breakthrough on the uh, genetic cr the CRISPR technology. Yeah. We're going to be able to cure sickle cell anemia. Mm -hmm. That's incredible with one shot, essentially. Yeah, that is an incredible thing, and so you could say. That is a very good use of that technology for selection, because then the next step is to to do that DNA work at, as you said, in almost prenatal, that we could eradicate sickle cell anemia. That is an amazing step forward for human beings. But the negative side, of course, is, as you point out, designer babies and what are you breeding for and why? The why is always the thing that's going to get everybody into trouble. No, I think so. Well, and it's interesting. And I will do well because I can go down a whole rabbit hole here, too, because this is an interesting topic, because eliminating sickle cell anemia while on the surface seems like a great thing. You should probably eliminate malaria first because the whole reason sickle cell anemia even exists in the first place is that people who had sickle cell were genetically predisposed to uh, resist malaria because malaria can't breed in the cells as effectively uh, if they're not round. And so you it's this whole thing where nature is kind of doing a lot of this work. Of, it's not all bad. And so I think that that's where things get tricky. You got it. If you get rid of malaria, sickle cells out of here um, because then it doesn't have any purpose at all. And so, yeah, and this is these are these moral conundrums. Mm -hmm. I'm going to bring up another one that is food related. All right. I. I have alpha, alpha gal. You may have heard of alpha gal, Definitely which not. is it is a meat protein um, allergy. Okay, and you get it from ticks. So um, the tick-borne diseases, those pathogens, uh -huh. with as the climate changes and global warming, those mm -hmm. pathogens are spreading to more ticks. The ticks are spreading throughout the United States, and there's a lot of science talking about how bad meat eating is for the environment. And so if nature, and it, I'm, I'm going out on a limb here, if nature in her own way starts making people allergic to eating meat, meat consumption, of course, is going to go down and will help the planet. But those are the things that are built into nature. I mean, it, it's all connected. Right? I mean, I remember uh, when I was studying marine biology, the ocean 
has a whole long chemical equation for reaching equilibrium. You know, if there's too much of this salt here, it breaks down and goes here, and then it all evens itself out. Nature works the same way. I mean, I think a lot of these things that do spring up, they're all connected. And we, as human beings, love to pick and choose one individual thing and say, like, oh, we can deal with this one thing without understanding the full ramifications of what that, the interconnectivity of all that. And I think that that's, you know, that's kind of the theme of your book is the interconnectivity of thought and how uh, everything that we do, it, saying whether it's good or bad is kind of, it's not the right way to be looking at things. It's not the right way at all. And thank you for, for getting it because it is about the interconnectivity. That yeah. is the whole book about how these, the people, the ideas, the food is interconnected down to the point of they're sharing recipes, communes and, and some communes which share recipes with each other other cult, w groups that we call cults today, that means they're very high control, they were sharing recipes with each other. And it, it becomes humorous to think about, you know, the cult next door knocking on the door for a cup of sugar. But uh, these folks all knew each other, and they would take what was working um, and incorporate it and reject the rest and change it to make it work for them. And I think that's where, as Americans specifically, we are a little short-sighted. We're not good historians um, as you're pointing out, because nature does have a way, and that requires million year thinking, uh, and right. we tend to we tend to think about twenty year spurts. <laughs> if we're lucky, yeah, right, yeah. The bigger the bigger picture is often lost. Uh, we're very very myopic in that way. Uh, so one thing I want to get to before we run out of time here, uh, I want to talk about the Seventh Day Adventist because this, I really like I like the things you pointed out here because. You know, um, they really had this emphasis on scientific diet and vegetarianism and specific times when you eat, how you eat, um, you know, bowel movements were were regulated and uh, tracked, you know, and this is in the 1800s, 1863. And one of my favorite uh, cities, Battle Creek, Michigan, what a great name. Uh, and, you know, bland food was preferred. You know, um, the Kellogg and the uh, and the cornflakes are involved in this whole story. And that exists today. This might be one of the first real movements in vegetarianism and scientific thinking for diets. Th so I think that they're really crucial. Um, might be the crux of your book. That might be the centerpiece of what's going on here. Well, the convergence of the science and then the spirituality and the beliefs yeah. kind of really came together with the Seventh-day Adventists because um, that time period that – post-civil war people are are thinking about how do we how are we american really all of this is how do we get to be american mm -hmm. and they were looking at the emerging food science and ideas about proteins vitamins vitamins are just being discovered and understanding what the food does to the body all based on a core belief that your body is a temple. It does not belong to you. It belongs to God. So you don't have the right to eat a can of Pringles and, and drink Coke every day and call it because, <laughs> you're, you're, you know, that yeah. is not taking care of the temple. Mm -hmm. And so that a whole culture uh, grew up on health, vegetarianism, as well as the spirituality. So much so some of the, if we go to Adventists have hospitals, if you look at the very long running blue sky study, I think it's called the blue sky studies uh, or blue zone studies, the folks in Loma Linda, California, which is one of the, the areas where a lot of seven day Adventists are centered because of their medical hospitals are there. So it's highly a dense SDA area. Those folks are the healthiest people in the United States based on their diet That's crazy. and their lifestyle. 
And it was all influenced by the spiritual belief. Yeah. I mean, that's where it all starts, right? And that's really mm-hmm. what you're saying is it, the, the spiritual belief, um, it, it influences the, the food that you take in because we are, you know, you are what you eat. That is really true. We literally break down that food and turn it into pieces of us. You know, I mean, our, our, our body's turned over every, what, three years or something? Yeah, ish, yeah, or or seven years if you're seven one years. of if you're dealing of like the Hindu, everything is in a seven year cycle. Right. Um, but this idea, though, is you are what you eat, and you belong to God is is a prevalent idea, and it morphs over time. Um, one of the more extreme examples, if you think about breathitarian, you know, the breathitarianisms, the that idea that you can become then so holy and sanctified and one with God that you don't even need food anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, that does borderline on psychosis, I would think, um, because you can't, you do need more than oxygen. But you do. Yes. I think we, I think we can all, I'm not a scientist, I'm not a doctor, but I think we can all agree that you probably need a little bit more than air, but you know, but it, that, that's extreme, right? And there are these, these extremists, extreme. uh, but this, I liked, you know, I like closing on the, the, um, did you call them the SDAs? The SDAs. SDA. Yeah. Seventh day Adventist. Yeah. Because you have you in this one, you really have a lot of long lasting legacy food, um, influences, which includes vegetarianism, uh, cornflakes, you know, the Morningstar brand, I don't know why it's named after Lucifer, but the Morningstar brand of meat substitute, uh, I think they're associated, the Worthington company is associated, yeah. uh, Little Debbie's, uh, you know, uh, is, is also in there. And, you know, they've, uh, and they've got a cookbook that, that you also have. So they kind of, to me, if you, for a poster child, I thought it was Pastafarians, but I think it's a Seventh-day Adventist. I think that they really encapsulate everything that you're trying to do with this book. They, they hit all the marks. They were a new religious movement. They were born out of a failed apocalypse movement. Um, they had um, odd leadership at the beginning and in the very American way is they were considered so radical when they started in their early days. And now today, we don't really think as uh, the Seventh-day Adventists as a radical religious group. Mm-hmm. And as they become more accepted and more mainstream, that's where you actually see, as happens to every religious movement in the United States, they start to break off mm-hmm. and have sex. And that's where you get the David Koresh's. The The Waco group was essentially an offshoot of Seventh-day Adventism. Hmm. And S-E-C-T-S. Um is, is what you yes. Mean. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, I've got a Midwestern accent. <laughs> I just want to clarify for the audience. Yeah. I want to talk, hopefully you've got 10 more minutes to talk to me about California communes. I'm out here, um, you know, we won't hit some of the dark ones, but they have a lot of long lasting legacy. Do you have time for me for a little bit? Oh, absolutely. I love, I'm going to be in California next week, so I oh, can wow. go and talk more about all of the California communes and cults and new religious movements and how Southern California especially became like the headquarters of Wu. <laughs> the headquarters of Wu. I love it. Well, so how can people get in touch with you? They won't read your book, uh, Holy Food. How can people get in touch with you, your book, find you in social media, or even find if they don't like this book, uh, all the others on Feral House? Yeah, so we've got feralhouse.com is our the publisher website. Um, we publish nonfiction only and on usually kind of interesting. We try to be interesting and little outsider topics. My website is christinaward.net. 
it has information. You can email me there. Um, and the all, books, my book and all Feral House books are internationally distributed. So you can order it if your local bookstore isn't carrying it, or you can go to your favorite online retailer and it'll be there. What about social media? You do that? Social media? Uh uh, we the Feral House has um, a Twitter account and a Facebook account and a Threads account and an Instagram account. And if you really want to find me, you can you can message through Feral House. Okay. <laughs> all right, I'll I'll make sure to put links to all of those up on the website. And of course, the website for this show is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find us on social media on X, formerly Twitter at Fascinating Noun, and on Facebook at Fascinating Nouns. Uh, this has been so much fun, Christina. Uh, uh, the you know, the religious movements, the uh, the quirkiness of humanity and our spiritual thought, I think, is really brought to the forefront in this book. And, you know, we love to eat and that's always an issue. Uh, so this is great. Thank you so much for, for being on the show and talking to me about this. Oh, thank you. It's been a blast. I'm so glad we were able to wander all over the book. <laughs> we certainly were. Uh, so I want to thank you and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is, once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. And speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of fascinatingnouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.